So, I mean, look, when I was hired at Yext, I was hired with the title of VP of Sales, which was a great title for me at the ripe old age of like 26 or 27 uh, and meant absolutely nothing. Uh, and, and I say that because I was the VP of nobody. I was the VP of myself. Our guest today, Brian Rakowski, started at Yext as the first employee and eventually grew the sales team to 140 team members and over 100 million in revenue. Welcome to another episode of Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of revenue leaders behind successful companies. Grow and tell, grow and tell. Brian Rakowski led sales at Yex for over a decade. When he joined, they were called gymticket.com, a local listings website that sold leads to gyms. They later expanded into other categories like vets and TV repairmen before wrapping everything into one website, Yext. By the time Brian left Yext in 2017, they were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. In today's episode, Brian shares what it was like to lead sales as they built and rebuilt Yext, his philosophy for hiring their first 100 salespeople, and how he came to co-found his new company, Marquee, where he serves as a CRO. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd love to start with your time at Yex, where you joined as actually the first hire. But when you joined, Yex was actually Gym Ticket. I'd love to know kind of what made you join. What was that early product? What was the team like? Can you take us back to those early days? Yeah, so so early days, uh, you know, of Gym Ticket, really GymTicket.com, I guess is what we went by. The start of my career there really kind of you know began because a very close friend of mine who was one of the founders of Gym Ticket, which eventually became Yex. And we had a conversation. I was living in Florida at the time, looking for a reason uh, or something to bring me back to the New York area uh, where I was born and raised. And the opportunity, you know, was one of those sort of you get these once in a lifetime opportunities that you just can't pass up. And this felt like it could be one of those. And so had the conversation with my friend Brian, met the other two co-founders of the company at the time, Howard and Brent. Uh, Things went, you know, uh, as expected, and uh, they asked me to you know become a part of the team. And within three months, I was living in New York and working in Columbus Circle with the three founders and myself in a very very small office. Uh, you know that probably held a maximum of like six total people. Very cool. And what was the actual product like? What 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 were people buying? What were you selling? Can you kind of take us back to those early sales conversations? Yeah. So you know the sort of the the funny story of you know my my start at Gym Ticket was on that initial sort of quote unquote interview with the uh, with the founding team i basically you know needed to know what are we selling here like what are we providing to gyms what is you know what are we offering to health clubs uh and the simple answer was it was a lead submission form right it was consumers searching for health clubs or gyms in their local area potentially wanting to try out the gym gyms just needed to uh require were required to just give a one day free guest pass some gave more and for that, for trading, for trading in that, uh, you know, guest pass, we would give them the, you know, the customer information. We had all the metrics as to sort of, you know, how many leads converted to a new member, what a new member was worth, uh, and really the business grew from there. But as part of my interview, after asking those questions and getting the, you know, the answers from, you know, from Howard and Brian and Brent, I asked if I could just make a couple calls and see sort of what, you know, take rate was, what the take the temperature of potential, you know, customers in the industry and. Within about the first 30 to 45 minutes of me being on the phones, I made my first sale. And I realized that this was going to be something that we could definitely bring to market at, at, you know, at, at a pretty big capacity. And so it sounds like you kind of felt product market fit almost immediately. And I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Gyms always want more leads and more customers. And so if you kind of bring bring that to them, you know, it's sort of a, a no-brainer. Is that sort of what it felt like right yeah. away? 
you know, look, in the end, like health clubs, gyms, right? They all, they have a sales team, right? When you walk into any health club, there is somebody there that, you know, is membership services or memberships and their job, while they call it something different, is sales. And so because they had that sales team, they had, you know, they had staff at the health club that was there ready to take these new leads, ready to make, you have these conversations, make additional phone calls because the owners of these health clubs obviously want as many members as possible. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was a perfect match. But then like you, you pivoted away from gym ticket, right? You, you sort of, can you take us back to that story? Cause I think you had this lead gen business that seemed yeah. to be working pretty well, but then from my understanding, you transitioned to, I think it was like pay per phone call or pay per action model and yeah, so, maybe expanded beyond gyms. Yeah. So what had happened was we, we sort of realized, okay, we can sell leads to gyms. Who else can we sell leads to? Uh, and we also quickly realized that not Every business that we want to talk to has a sales staff. So how do we figure out a way in which we can actually sell these quote unquote opportunities or leads without having them to do any of their own outreach, you know, front office staff, office manager, and things of that sort. And so the, the company rebranded as a, as a company called Alpha 411. And it probably was that name for, for a couple of years. Uh, and we started expanding into new industries uh, where we transitioned from that, you know, pay per lead model to a pay per phone call model. The basic idea behind that was we were going to drive new phone calls to your business. But the sort of like, you know, secret sauce, if you will, was that we had a technology that transcripted voice to text. And based on the conversation, we were able to determine which calls were actually relevant to new business. And we only build the clients for what we considered to be a new business phone call. Quick example, right? Uh, chiropractors was a it was a large industry for us. If you know, I called the chiropractor as a salesperson looking to provide them with some sort of new piece of equipment uh, that would not be considered a new phone call. But if I called the chiropractor and say, you know, hey, rolled out of bed this morning, my back is really hurting. Can I come in on Thursday? Whether they booked the appointment with me or not, that was on the that was on the front office staff. But that was considered a new business phone call in which we would then charge the client for that opportunity. Really cool. And so how did it work? Like, were there like landing pages that were out there for chiropractors that, you know, were under alpha 411 or whatever, and then people would find that landing page and then call through the page? Is that kind of how, how it would work? It wasn't through Alpha 411. Alpha 411 was never going to be a household name. We actually created branded pages specifically by industry. So you're asking me to go back probably, you know, 15 years here on what they were called. I remember Cairo, chiropractors was called chiroappointment.com. Veterinarians was called localvets.com. There was a, there was furniture repair near you. There was dozens of industries. Some we tested that we found out didn't work, uh, and others that you know were obviously a great success. Yeah, really cool. So it's a so piggybacking off of sort of local search, spinning up these little microsites off off different verticals, and then using that as sort of the lead gen. Yeah, makes makes right. a lot makes a lot of sense. And then eventually you transition to kind of the business that Yex is known for mm -hmm. today, which is like I think of it as kind of listings and search. Can you talk about why you made that switch and kind of what that transition was like? Yeah. So look, I, you know, I think that really kind of boils down to a few different, you know. It's a few different things that sort of happened. Number one was that, as I just mentioned, right, the idea of Alpha 4 and 1, the idea of that pay per call model uh, didn't work for every industry. 
uh, and that kind of limited, you know, limits your TAM and limits the amount of businesses that you can actually go after. Uh, and so that's sort of one impetus for that change is like, we need to, you know, expand on the, on the businesses and industries we can reach out to. And I think the second piece of it really came down to just sort of an interesting fact about the way that that brand or those industries worked. Um, like I said, we had these different websites that we would, you know, that would be found online if you searched for, you know, a chiropractor or, you know, uh, you know, auto glass near you. We would have sites that would show up in search through paid ads, through high and organic search that would drive traffic. However, the listings for each one of these businesses that were partners, you know, with the Alpha 4 and 1 or Yext calls at the time, we were posting all the information about the business except for a unique phone number that we created for them. And that's how we did the call tracking. And that's how we understood what calls were coming through and which ones we could bill for and which ones, you know, were charged and which ones weren't. And so sort of the light bulb went off at the time is like, why are these businesses that have been around for as long as they have 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, allowing us to post their information with a completely different phone number than what is actually their direct line. And you realize that in organic search, in just finding the way, uh, you know, finding businesses online, the challenge is that managing and maintaining that local information across, you know, search properties like Google, like Yelp, like Bing is almost impossible. And in reality, the control of the data actually belongs to the publisher and not necessarily the business owner. And so for a business owner saying, look, I know that my phone number is, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but if you're going to get me more calls, because nobody's finding me on Google, give me the calls. I don't care what number it is. And that's sort of what, you know, again, like I said, that light bulb went off and it said, well, maybe we should just fix the actual information for the business because that's going to yield better results all around. And when you made that switch, because you're already, I guess, how many years into the business were you when you kind of switched into it? So if I, if I had a guess, I think so, you know, the company officially launched in, I think, October of 06. I joined in just about March or April of 07. Uh, and it was probably somewhere in the 2011, 2012, where we uh, bifurcated and Yex Calls went off to do its thing, which eventually sold, uh, which I rebranded to Felix, eventually sold to IAC. Uh, and sometime 2011, 2012 is when the, the listings, um, you know, business began. Uh, and obviously, you know, as you know, since IPO'd in 2017 and is still flourishing today. And was that a scary switch at the time where, where, where people sort of wondering whether, all right, is this going to work? And, and did it start working right away? Or yeah, was there sort of like a, you know, an uncertainty at the time? Yeah. So I would say, look, to the, to the founders credits, uh, they were always willing to take massive bets, right. And risk everything to, to try and make it work. Uh, and look, sometimes things, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't. There's definitely a few products that we tried big risks that didn't pay off. Um, but, uh, quite honestly, when the, when that, transition was happening when they were splitting the company into two. Uh, Brian, the, the the guy I mentioned earlier, he called me into his office and he sat me down. And, you know, this was years later. I had had my first kid at the time. And he asked me, he said, you know, like, like we had a heart to heart conversation. Are you up for this again? Right? Because we just went through five years of true building a startup from the ground up to what it became. And we were about to do it again. You know, look, I believed in him. I believed in the mission of, of the company and what we were trying to accomplish. And so heads down, we split the company. We were in Chelsea Market at the time. And we had the uh, the seventh and eighth floors of Chelsea Market. And we basically put one company on the eighth floor. And we started the new company from from scratch on the seventh floor. And, and, and away we went. Very cool. Awesome to have an office in, in Chelsea Market. Just go downstairs and, and get good food, too. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and was what you, after you made this transition, um, was there sort of like an aha moment where you realized, okay, like this is actually working and, and it, it's really kind of taking off. So I don't know if there was really an aha moment, uh, but we certainly knew that we had, you know, we, we sort of cracked a code, you know, on what businesses really wanted and really needed. And, you know, whether this statement is true or not, you know, I will credit Yext for basically creating the concept of this, you know, listings environment and ensuring and managing your data across, you know, as many publishers and, and, and having as much structured data and content as you can that can be shared, you know, as often as possible. There have been many, many companies that have popped up since uh, that offer similar solutions. But I would say that, you know, at the time we were definitely the pioneers. And so in reality, again, like my belief is that we we educated the industry, right? There was no concept of doing what we did prior to us creating that capability. And it was, I don't say a difficult sales cycle, but telling somebody you can do something that nobody else has ever been able to do before is a difficult thing to convince somebody of. Obviously, once they use the technology and they see that it works, it's a home run. But you know, it takes time to educate an industry. Conversations, you know, today, everyone kind of gets that, you know, this this product is is a need to have, not a want to have. Yeah. And let's talk more about that sales process. Can you can you talk a little bit about how it worked? I imagine there was a lot of cold calling small businesses and then and how did it sort of evolve from there? To be clear, my focus over my, you know, 11, 12 years uh, at Yext was uh, squarely in both what I call the small business or SMB or commercial market. And then I also managed uh, for a number of years, what we considered our, our partnership division, uh, and then also had a, a little bit of a hand as I kind of, you know, before I exited, uh, you know, towards the end of 2017, running the mid-market. So I didn't focus on the enterprise side, which is obviously a much longer sales cycle. And so in the the commercial and partner space, you know, our, our go-to-market was, yes, there was a lot of, you know, quote-unquote cold calling, but, you know, I want to credit our marketing team, you know, and our lead gen team you know, over the years that I worked there in providing our sales team with inbound leads. At the time, we actually called them submits. That's a long story going back to like the gym ticket days. And even though they weren't technically submits in the X days, that like that nomenclature stuck. And so our team never reached out to anyone, you know, quote unquote, cold in the sense that there wasn't some sort of interaction that they had had with our platform. Uh, And so whether that be, you know, a white paper download, whether that being, you know, running a scan for their own business, there was always a reason for us to reach out because the customer had engaged in some way, shape or form with, you know, with our platform. Uh, And so, yes, I mean, if you talk to any of the salespeople, they'll tell you the calls probably felt quite cold, but every there was never a lead that came into the system that wasn't because the client did something on their end that created the lead on our end. Gotcha. So yeah, some marketing touch point and then a sales follow-up based off that. Can you talk about the scanning thing you just mentioned? Because that reminds me of like HubSpot's website grader where you can kind of put yeah. in your website and and get an analysis. And then it's like, yep. oh, crowd, my website needs to be optimized. Maybe I should buy HubSpot. Was it something similar? It was like very, that? very similar. Yeah. The idea was you can just enter in, you know, your your basic business information. Uh, and we had API integrations with pretty much every major publisher on the market. And so there was probably 80 of them. And it would take all of your business information and it would basically compare it to what existed online today with links to the actual listings themselves. So when you type in your information as a business owner, exactly as you think it should appear online, and you see that Google has a wrong phone number and Yahoo has a bad address and Yelp has the wrong hours... 
all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and goes, well, that's a problem. Uh, and so that immediately sort of like, you know, opened the customer's eyes to the issue that existed. So we didn't have to necessarily, you know, uncover the pain, as they say mm-hmm. in sales, the pain was there in front of their face. And we were able to utilize that and talk about how our technology actually fixed all that through one, you know, through one dashboard. Gotcha. Yeah. And I can imagine the pitch is, is much more powerful when it's like, see, this number is wrong. This thing is wrong. And then, yeah. hey, we can we can fix all that for X amount. And so was it a pretty transactional sales process, oh, like one call closes and, and things on like a, that? On the, on the small business side, mainly, mostly one call close, right? I don't say mostly one call closes, but a one yeah. call close was not uncommon. Uh, it happened, you know, day in and day out. Generally, let's call it a, a maximum two to three call sales cycle because the initial call was explaining the solution. Second call was to likely get them to get payment. If it didn't happen on the second call, it was done by the third call. And if we didn't close it on the third call, odds of us closing the business dropped, you know, exponentially. Very cool. And I, I'm curious like how you tested different vertical markets. Cause I imagine selling to chiropractors is very different than selling to restaurants versus veterinarians. I mean, am I right that it was very different or was it all kind yeah. of common pain points across all of them? Very fair question. And actually, to, you know, going, that, that takes us back to like the Alpha 4 on one days where there was a very different talk track and a different sales approach than it was on the X listings days. Because listings are listings. If you are a brick and mortar business that has you know, a, 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 you know, a place of business and you have a location, well, then it doesn't matter whether you're an auto repair shop, a chiropractor, you know, or, you know, or a veterinarian. All, everybody has location information. To your point on like the, the calls model, Yes, it was a very, very different structure. And truthfully, like a conference room like I'm sitting in today, the way that we tested some new verdict first, the first thing we did, if I take a step back, was we wanted to see was there traffic, right? So we would create essentially these websites to see how many people are actually visiting to find these types of businesses. The second piece of that was like, okay, if they're visiting the the site to find these types of businesses, what actions are they taking? Are they picking up the phone and making a call? And if they're picking up the phone and making a call, what is that call related to? So again, I don't know how crazy deep you want me to go, but like for an example of an industry that didn't work for us, right? I know it's a little bit morbid, but we tested funeral homes, right? And funeral parlors. I mean, it's a business, right? And they, they do want to have, you know, they're, they're always going to have customers. Uh, but um, when we tested the model, there was a ton of traffic to the site. There were a ton of phone calls, but the phone calls were all related to hey, I need to attend this funeral service. Can I have the time and the address, right? Now, obviously, from a business perspective, you know, what we needed, the calls we needed to send were people looking for, you know, a a, a funeral service themselves or looking for, you know, a casket or looking for a plot. And unfortunately, for the business side of it, that's not the calls that were driven. So that industry never even made it to call testing. However, in the chiropractor model of, hey, I rolled out of bed, I, you know, I, I tweaked my neck, we learned the types of calls that were happening. And the way that we tested the model, as silly as this may sound, is I locked myself in a conference room for a full business day and just made phone calls without a website, without anything to point to except for gymticket.com at the time. And the same concept and idea basically said, we're doing this for this industry. And if I could get a credit card in one business day from somebody over the phone, we would launch the, launch the model. It's a great story because it just shows how you need to be scrappy in the early days. And you actually don't even need a, a real product to kind of prove out that there is some product market fit and just good, good, good market validation. So yeah, th- thank you for sharing. Yeah. And it's surprising. Like I would have thought the funeral home segment would, would do better than I yeah, guess it, was, it, it performed, industry, right? Yeah. A couple industries. That's the one that always sticks out that like yeah. just work, but there was a couple industries that just didn't work. We just couldn't. Yeah. 
we couldn't we could get the traffic it was it was it was look it was a math equation right because at the end of the day we had to determine not only like do we drive traffic do we drive phone calls and how much do we charge per phone call because every industry was charged a different dollar amount for the phone calls based mm-hmm. on you know lifetime value of a new customer based on you know what what it actually cost us to drive that phone call and so all that math had to work out in order for us to to launch uh, you know a new vertical a new industry and you mentioned earlier that you also manage kind of the partnership team at EX can you talk about what what that team was doing and maybe how that was different kind of than the SMB sales team that yeah. you're managing so, so that was actually born out of the you know small business commercial team. Uh, you know, one of the people who had worked on my small business team sort of came across a few you know agencies, if you will, that were interested in reselling uh, the Yext solution to their customers. So they were a small, let's you know, at the time they were very small mom and pop kind of hometown agencies. So I have my own business. You know, I'm I'm here. You know, just outside in the suburbs of New York, and I. For my own profession, I manage the, I'm the outsource marketing solution for 10, 12, 15 businesses in my hometown. And they, pay, they each pay me a monthly, you know, retainer to manage all of their, their marketing solutions. And so these people started realizing like, Hey, there's an opportunity for me to offer the X solution to my customers. Can I buy it at a bulk discount? Is there a way that I can manage this through, you know, through my, you know, through my own platform? Uh, and so. As a seller who's trying to make as many sales as possible, if I can get one person to give me 15 at once versus doing it one at a time, obviously I'm going to go, you know, to the path of least resistance. And that really was how the partnership team, you know, was created. Uh, and it sort of just kind of expanded from there to the realization that like large, massive partners are now, you know, partnered with, you know, with Yext in, in providing the Yext services to their customer base. That's super interesting. Actually, it reminds me of like my first like experience in marketing was in college. I created this company, Nola Media Solutions, and I was managing basically the listings for like a local uh, El Salvadorian restaurant and a couple other places in New Orleans. And it's like I was probably I wasn't like reselling X, but I was doing those things that it probably would have been very helpful for for me at the time. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about kind of managing the sales team. Can you can you paint a picture of like how the sales team kind of Grew at Yax, like where I know it started with just you, but kind of by the end, how big of a team were were you were you managing? Yeah, so I mean, look, when I was hired at Yax, I was hired with the title of VP of Sales, which was a great title for me at the ripe old age of like twenty six or twenty seven, uh, and meant absolutely nothing. And, and I say that because I was the VP of nobody. I was the VP of myself, right? And so the the idea was that I, I essentially sat in every role, figuring out what the benchmarks of success were for um, for each individual role. So first, what does it mean to be successful as a seller? Like, what are the metrics that mean like this is the amount of activity, this is the amount of deals, this is the amount of like, what can I do like to to sort of be successful and be the the level where I want everyone at. Once that was sort of figured out and we started hiring additional sellers, I got to sit as a, you know, as a sales manager uh, and manage a team and basically, you know, keep that team, you know, humming and making sure the training was happening and, you know, hiring, firing and making sure we're growing the team successfully. We continue to expand and grow. And I finally get to sit as a sort of, even though I have the VP title, I'm now technically a director of sales overseeing a few managers that are managing their own individual teams and eventually got to sort of step into the VP role that I was, you know, that, that was the name of my title already and managing a bunch of directors that were managing teams underneath them. Looking back, it felt like it grew you know, slowly, but obviously it grew very, very quickly. You know, I have a couple of philosophies in, in hiring and not the, you know, the hire fast and fire faster. Uh, it's, it's more along the lines of how, how quickly you should grow your team if you have a culture that you like. Right. And so if, 
if we're happy with the way the culture of the sales team is exists today, then I don't want to upset the apple cart. And in order to not upset the apple cart, I can't bring in too many people that whose voice will overpower the existing culture there today. So I generally I try not to bring in more than 50% of a sales team at one given time. So if I have 10 sellers and I want to grow the team, I won't hire more than four or five at one fell swoop because I want the voice of 10 to basically train and teach the voice of the five, not have an, another massive group coming in that can sort of sway you know, the, uh, you know, again, the culture and the attitude of the existing team. Makes a lot of sense. And from my understanding, you kind of hired mostly like green kind of young sales reps, people right out of college, I think, or maybe it was like their second, second job. Like, why did you make that decision? The running joke there for me was that I'd rather teach you my bad habits than break somebody else's. Uh, that was really kind of the reasoning behind it. We also wanted people that were, you know, that were hungry and people that have been in sales for five, seven, 10, 15 years, generally you don't find those that are willing to sort of grind. Uh, you know, this was, you know, at the time it was, you know, 100, 120 dials a day, three to four hours of talk time every single day, booking demos, and it's a tough job. I don't want to say it's thankless because if you're good at it, you make really good money in commissions, but it is a tough job to, to come in every single day and, and try and be successful. I always, you know, um, we talk about like the hiring of, of athletes, right? And while yes, that makes sense. And I agree with some of the sort of like competitiveness that like an athlete might have. Uh, my opinion is that you don't have to be an, an athlete to be successful in sales, but you have to be, you know, you have to have, you have to know what it's like to lose and get up and go back and get better and do it again the next day. So I don't care if you played on your high school's chess team or your college's chess team and didn't do anything, you know, athletic for your entire life. You had to go and compete and you had to win. And if you lost, you could not let that bother you. You had to figure out what you did wrong and make it right the next time. Uh, and so that the understanding what it's like to lose and go back and, and get after it again is all that really mattered. So I think people always like conflate that with just athletes and sports, but I think it like obviously, you know, is, is much broader than that. Uh, and so that was really what we looked for people that like were part of competition that were willing to push to get better for themselves because they enjoyed it because in sales, you're going to lose way more than you win and you have to be able to move past that. Yeah. I love that, that mentality. I mean, yeah, the, the best sales reps I know just have a certain grittiness to them and are just incredibly competitive and just get so upset when, when they lose. And then they, you know, sort of change all the things that, that they need to do to make sure that they're, they're, they're winning constantly. It's, uh, yeah. It's funny. I, I was never personally competitive, like in sports. Like I was always like, yeah, I missed the basketball shot, whatever. But, but when it comes to, to business, like, you know, especially when I've been building doc, it's like, no, I want to win every single deal and I'm going to come back and figure out, all right, how do I build the, the features? or change the sales process to kind of figure out and, and make it happen. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but it sounds like your approach to training the sales team was actually having the other sellers on the sales team kind of train them. Like you, would you bring in like a class of, you know, young sales reps and then, you know, like the other 10 current sales reps would train the other five? Like, can you, how would that training process work? Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, the initial sort of onboarding, if you will, uh, which, you know, I still run a process of that today at Marquee is this sort of, you know, one week boot style training, right? We're going to go through product. We're going to go through process. We're going to go through sales. We're going to go through systems, everything that has to do with the company. But in the world of true sales and, you know, phone sales, right? Telesales, the only way to actually get good at the job is to do the job. You know, we could teach you in theory all day long what should work and what makes you successful. But you're not going to learn until you actually get on the phones and start having conversations and get hung up on, get cursed at. Uh, you know, all of that, all of those things are going to happen. 
And so, yes, I think it was extremely important for to mix the existing sellers with the new sellers so that the new sellers could learn from the existing sellers. Uh, and, you know, look, after a couple, let's say, weeks or months on the job, you could walk by anyone's desk and hear the conversation that they're having with the customer where all you can hear is the rep. You can't hear the customer, but you know exactly what the customer asked based on how the rep is responding to, you know, to the question or, or whatever was posed in front of them. And, and just hearing those things and picking up different phrases and different sayings and ways of handling objections, the best way to permeate that across the floor was just to be in the mix of it. So our, you know, our sales pit, you know, at its peak was probably like 130, 140 people. And it was loud. Uh, and sometimes you'd have people complaining that it's too loud. You've, you know, the, the old boiler room scene of like people getting under their desks with their phone on their ear absolutely happened many, many times, you know, to try and have some quiet, you know, peace and quiet to have a conversation. But it was that energy, it was that camaraderie, and it was that ability to hear your, you know, your peers that made everyone better and also made everyone want to do better because you watch the success happening. It was a really fun environment. It was it had its wild and crazy times, but uh, it, it was certainly, uh, you know, an enjoyable time. That's been the hardest part about kind of this like pandemic remote work world, especially I think sales teams are probably hit the hardest. I mean, I know at at Lattice, especially is like when there was young, young sellers, like the training is just very different in in a remote environment and you can't just like pick up on things that the person next to you is doing. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how kind of the business world maybe shifts back into in person, especially sales teams, I think will, will probably need to be. Yeah. So, so I get for me, and I agree with you, like, look, Marquee is 100% remote, right? We don't have a, a true office. The challenge is we lose out on the benefit of, of that sort of in-office camaraderie and in-office, you know, learning through osmosis. However, I think one of the big benefits that we have being remote is that I'm not limited to hiring from a 15-mile radius, right? So I can find the best in class anywhere in the country. So that may not need uh, as much of what that in-office environment brought. And I can still find success from people that are, you know, look, I'm in New York. So if you're in Seattle, if you're in Oklahoma, I don't care if you're really good at this job and you can do this job, live anywhere, work. We have a very healthy work from anywhere attitude, uh, you know, at Marquee. And so we, we encourage people to like not be in an office and to make calls from the beach if you can do your job and be successful at it. Yeah, no, the, there's pros and cons to, yeah. to both, both approaches. And yeah, I don't know. I even find in my own personal, personal life, there's, there's some weeks where I really want to be remote and do that kind of work, work style. And then there's other times where I, I want to be in the office and, and have that camaraderie. While you were at Yex, like the company IPO'd, right? And I'd love to know like what that pre-IPO process was like and how did that impact the, the sales and partnership teams? Did that kind of change the way you have to work or was it sort of more business as, as usual? Uh, I mean, things certainly change, right? As you sort of grow as an organization and grow as a company, you know, new rules, new policies, new procedures. I mean, this, the story that I always tell and I probably shouldn't share uh, is, you know, in the early, early days, you know, of like partnership and SMB, like I probably like, I want to be very clear, I'm not a lawyer. I definitely had a hand in writing a number of our contracts in which I also signed with our customers to obviously, you know, Fast forward a couple of years, having, you know, general counsel and a true legal team to not even being able to sign a contract on behalf of Yext because of sort of the legalities in place behind it, which, of course, all makes sense. But just these are things that change as an organization grows and becomes more mature. You know, prior to the IPO, look, it was never really a a conversation, right? The other, the question is always posed like, oh, what's the exit strategy? Do you have an exit strategy? Is it an IPO? Is it a sale? And, you know, as cliche as it is to say, build the business, do the right things, and then 
the right things will happen. And so I can't sit here and tell you that like the goal was always to IPO or always to sell. The goal was to build the biggest, best business we possibly possibly could. And whatever happened from there happened. You know, don't get me wrong. The IPO was, you know, was a great time. It was fun. It was interesting. It also changes the, um, the dynamic of, you know, your ability to sell into brands because now all of a sudden you have the quote unquote clout of being a public company under your belt. And you, that immediately comes with some level of trust. It doesn't like, you know, it doesn't break down every barrier, but there is this level of like, oh, this is not, you know, a small fledgling startup based in a small office in Columbus Circle in New York anymore. This is, you know, this is a large public company, uh, you know, managing, you know, managing services globally for tens of thousands of businesses. I'd love to switch gears and talk about your own personal growth. Cause I mean, you were at Yaks for 10 years and you sort of ended up doing a job that you had never done before. And I assume you must have learned a ton along the way, but like, how did you manage to kind of keep up with that company growth curve? How did you keep learning? How did you actually, and you kind of joked like you were a fake VP of sales. How did you actually be, you know, be, learn how to be a real VP of sales eventually? Look, the advice that I got early on, you know, from some of my friends and mentors within the business and in the space is, am I allowed to curse on this? I don't know the yeah. rules. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was like, it's okay to fuck up, just do it quickly and don't make the same mistake twice. Right. And I think hearing that and just like not being afraid to try something because it might be right, it might be wrong is is the way to go. Right. Obviously, you want to like learn from your past experiences. You want to discuss, you know, ideas and things you're trying to implement to make sure that you're thinking about things the right way. But regardless, if everything looks great on paper, when you put it to action, you might fall flat on your face. And that's okay. But you have to be able to be okay with that. And then learn from it, not make the same mistake twice. And don't dwell on the mistake you made, right? There are too many people that will sit there and like, you know, just like wallow in the fact that they screwed up and can't move past it. Like, Making mistakes is, is part of business. It's part of learning. And I think I was given the ability to make some of those mistakes and not, quote unquote, be punished for them, right? It was like, okay, you tried. It didn't work. Do it again. Try something different this time and go after it. And I just think giving, being given that freedom and flexibility allowed me to sort of like flex those muscles to sort of figure out what is the path for success, what is going to lead to, you know, the quickest wins for, you know, for my team, for, you know, for my, you know, for my, my branch of the organization. And again, I think the last piece of it is because I didn't step into a true VP of sales role, meaning I didn't step into an organization with 50, 60, 100, 500, 5,000 employees, right? I was able to sort of sit and do each job to learn what those what success looked like in the role. And it, I don't want to say it made it easier because it was obviously a long stretch, but it, it allowed me to speak from experience within that organization, which carries a tremendous amount of weight for those that come after you to look at you and say like, well, Brian's saying this not because he thinks it's going to work, because he did it and it worked. And this is why we do things this way. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're very much a servant leader, right? You, you rolled up your sleeves, you had done the job before, and then you kind of show, show people how to, how to do the job. And that builds up uh, a lot of, a lot of trust. And yeah, I don't know. Those are my favorite people to work for too. So and again, like if you're, you know, the, the saying, like, I'm not, I'm never going to ask somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do myself or haven't done myself or I'm not currently doing myself. Yeah. Were there any particularly tough moments that kind of stuck out along the way? Really, you know, tough conversation with the founder, tough conversation with employees that, you know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot, but yeah, anything that, that sticks out? I mean, look, as a, as a growing company and learning along the way, there was, you know, probably 
too many of those conversations, right? Where, you know, a quarter is not going as you had expected it. Your forecast is, you know, wildly off from what you, you know, initially thought was going to come in. Those are always difficult conversations and learning how to manage expectations and learning how to manage up is certainly a part of, you know, learning to be successful in this role. Um, obviously, you know, difficult conversations with employees, whether it's, you know, could be HR issues, could be personnel issues, like all of these things, you know, happened and occurred. Uh, but again, thanks to sort of like the team that we had put together there, everyone was sort of a, a partner in, in, in making things. You were never stranded on your own island. There was always somebody to sort of help you through whatever issue it might be uh, and, and help you manage the process so that you get through it. Right. And you learn from it. Right. Like I said, like if it was a mistake or if it was like you learn how to not let that happen again. So you, know, you grow from it. And now you're the founder of Marquee, which helps restaurants manage their online co-founder. Co 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 sorry, co-founder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, shout out Avi. Uh, so yeah, now you're the the co-founder of Marquee. Don't, don't forget uh, about Evan. Evan as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, Evan too. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, for for the record, I used to work with Avi at Yelp, so that's how we all uh, okay. you know we all we all met. Well, Avi, Avi uh, used to work with me at Yext. That's how I met Avi, and gotcha. Evan is the one who referred Avi to Yext. Gotcha. Very funny. Small world. It's funny yeah. as, as you, as you grow up in, in technology. Um, you know, it's a, it's a smaller world that, than you think, but, but yeah. So you're, you're the co-founder of Marquee, which helps restaurants manage their online listings and online menus. And I'd love to know kind of what, what made you decide to start a company? Why did you team up with, with, with Evan and Avi and, and kind of why this idea? The backstory here is that, you know, when Avi started working on the partnership team at Yext, you know, came on, he was, you know, a top performer. Uh, and he was very open and honest with me when he started his career there and saying that like, Hey, I'm, you know, this is what I'm looking to do. Uh, but I need you to know that at some point in time, you know, my intention is to start my own company. And look, I want to be very clear having, you know, at that point in, in the history of Yext, he's not the first person that came through one of my teams and shared that conversation with me. He is one of the first or like one of the few that actually went ahead and did it. Uh, and my response to him at the time was, all right, well, if I like your idea, Call me, I'll be your first check. Uh, and so true to his word and true to my word, he decided to start Marquee. He shared his initial you know, iteration of what Marquee was with me when he left uh, Yext. I invested immediately and I was actually initially a board member. So I've been a part of the journey since the beginning. Uh, I was actually, you know, uh, I guess we'll call it integral in helping Avi sort of talk Evan through uh, his decision to leave his role, um, you know, where he was working to also kind of like jump in feet first uh, with Marquee. And they ran the business for about two and a half years uh, before I came on board full time. It's shocking to me that full time is actually um, I'm about a month away from my three year anniversary of being full time with Marquee, which is crazy. My decision, you know, to join it with post Yext, I had taken some time. You know, I took took some summers to be with my family. I did some consulting work. I spent a little bit of time, you know, sort of, you know, working with another former uh, Yexter at a different at a different brand and a, and a direct to consumer brand, which I can tell you from experience, I will never work in a direct to consumer brand ever again. Uh, again, enjoyed you know my time away from Yext, but I always had the itch to you know to build right I, the. The, the red tape and the you know the long you know, over, you know the long overbuilt processes that exist in these large you know mega you know conglomerations are just not for me right I, I like to move quickly I like to break things I like to figure things out I like I like to fuck up and I like to fix it and then and move fast and so you know Avi and Evan had been you know both poking and prodding to see if I would come on board full time I had a couple of opportunities in front of me and I just you know, it was, you know, I guess four months into the pandemic. And I said, sure, why not jump feet first into a hospitality tech environment? That seems like a great idea. 
it was scary at first, you know, but we got through it. You know, we got through the pandemic as, you know, uh, you know, with, with our product and our solution uh, and really the core focus of what we provide on that menu management capability for the hospitality brands we work with is really sort of like it's taking off and we're seeing a lot of success with it, you know, you know, through all the brands that we work with, you know, throughout the, throughout the country and some global locations as well. And, and rec- restaurant technology is a super competitive ecosystem, right? You have like the delivery players like DoorDash, and Uber Eats, online reviews and listing sites like Yelp and Google, mm-hmm. restaurant reservation platforms like OpenTable and Resi. Like why do restaurants and I guess you call hospitality brands need marquee and like sort of where do you fit into this ecosystem? Where do you sort of feel like you have the product market fit? Yeah, so um, I mean, there's there's a number of different places where we fit in, but again, our core focus is on that the concept of that menu management, right? So you, as a consumer or anyone that listens to this, I'm sure has had a, an experience where they've gone online, uh, like most consumers will do, to like take a look at the menu of the restaurant they're about to go see, right, or they're about to go eat at, whether that be reservations for tonight or somebody you know booked a dinner for two weeks from now for a group party, and I want to know like what's on the menu. Uh, unfortunately. The menu inconsistency that exists across the board is insane. All yourself walked into a menu that is the item that you wanted is no longer on the menu. The price that you saw online is now 25% higher when you step into the restaurant and see it on their menu there. The LTO or limited time offer that you thought was available is no longer on the menu. It only comes back every other month. There's a lot of challenges. And that's a really terrible consumer experience. And restaurants and and, brands don't want that. Uh, And so our initial sort of goal was to try and fix that. That also then, as you had mentioned, kind of expanded into, well, why aren't we? dealing with the location, the listings, which is obviously something I've had a background in for many, many years and and working to fix and correct that and then tying that into their reputation management. But in reality, our goal here is to take some of the complexity of managing your, your, your hospitality operations off your plate. And the way that we do that is really focused on our integrations within hospitality. And that's where I think we have an advantage at least in our customer base, is that because we're so squarely focused in the hospitality industry, we go much deeper on our integrations and we offer far more sort of connections than other players that might have similar solutions in the space because they're not focused in hospitality. They're focused on any vertical industry. It doesn't matter. So the the players that we communicate with, the players that we build our integrations into are so much more meaningful to our customers and nobody else really has that capability. Gotcha. And you spent a lot of your career, I mean, selling into restaurants and, and these companies that have a, a physical location as opposed to other tech companies, which is basically, you know, my own experience. And I'd love to know, like, what makes selling to restaurants and hospitality different? I mean, I, I generally think maybe they're like a little less tech savvy or they're just kind of kind of very busy with the day to day operations. But yeah, what anything that sticks out? Look, I think for everyone that, you know, I shouldn't say everyone, but almost everyone that, you know, works at Marquee has some sort of hospitality experience, you know, in their past, right? Having worked in restaurants, whether that be short order cook, cashiers, you know, managers, some of them are even own their own restaurants that, you know, that currently work for EX today. There's just a passion in having been a part of the industry ourselves that makes everyone feel a little bit more connected to that experience of our customer. And I think it makes our conversations a little bit easier because we can speak from experience as, a, as opposed to speaking, you know, in theory. Uh, and I think that's what drives us and, and makes us so successful. And it's funny, like just as you say, the, you know, rest working in restaurants, going back to, you know, the original EX calls days, I know I mentioned, you know, funeral parlors, but restaurants was another industry that didn't work for us. Uh, it was another one on the call side of the business that didn't want 
calls because they never led, no one was calling to make a reservation or very, very few people were. People were going online and making reservations. People were calling about hours and things like that, which is a much more difficult sell. And so uh, really focusing in restaurants here and you know getting you know real deep in the industry has been super exciting. We meet a ton of great people and don't get me wrong, when we travel and we go to you know, conferences, like we're always getting the, you know, the best food and the best tables and the best room. So that, that definitely a perk of the job for sure. I was uh, literally about to make that joke. I always see Avi posting from like the pizza association or whatever. And it seems way more fun than like the, the HR conferences that yeah. I, I was at <laughs> to sell, sure. sell lattice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not stupid swag. You get like an actual slice of pizza, which is, exactly. which is awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I imagine a lot of these restaurants have um, like multi locations, right? Or there's franchises, multi like locations. Can you talk a little bit about that sales process? Is it, is it really different than a single location? What, how does that usually work? So it's, it's definitely different, right? You know, we have this sort of like, you know, quote unquote working theory internally that, you know, anyone can open a restaurant, right? If you decided that your, you know, your mom or grandma had the best pasta sauce that you've ever tasted in your life, you can open a restaurant based off of like the sauce and the pasta itself. And maybe it's successful. You might even be so successful that you get to a second location, right? By the time you hit three locations, the focus changes, right? It's no longer, you know, just Alex running a restaurant or two. It's becoming more of a business and there's more players involved and there's more conversations and you have more of a team behind you than just the staff at the restaurant itself. There might be a true HQ or a back office. And so, you know, Marquis focus is in, you know, don't get me wrong. We work with, you know, the mom and pop and the small single location, you know, businesses, but our focus is, is mainly, you know, as we, you know, put our sales team to work is on those multi-unit operators, right? Whether that be, you know, you know, multi-locations of the same business, whether that be chains and franchisees, whether that be hospitality groups that manage 50 locations, you know, but like seven different brands make up those 50 locations. And so the sales process is more of a less of a small business, you know, one, two call close and much more of the true discovery process. Let's understand what your current makeup is today. What does your tech stack look like? What are you doing to handle these certain solution situations today? What's your ideal? How can we make that better? Does is Marquee a fit? And you're and you're generally having conversations with multiple stakeholders within an organization because the concept of Marquee can fit squarely both under operations as well as marketing, sometimes technology. Uh, and it really depends on the organization. And if there's one thing I've learned in hospitality is there's no two hospitality groups do things the same way. Everybody does things their own way. Everybody does things differently. Learning how to navigate those conversations, understanding every player in that tech stack and how, you know, my marquee, I can either integrate or work directly with becomes an interesting point of, you know, conversation and how we can help benefit them. And, you know, the sales process itself is obviously a longer cycle, right? You know, we, we obviously, as any salesperson, you'd love to close the business as quickly as you possibly can, but you have to prove that value. You have to, in certain instances, right now we're navigating budget cycles and, you know, and annual budget meetings and existing contracts that might be in place for other vendors. And so there's a lot more involved than just like, hey, you want to swipe a credit card for 75 bucks a month for one location. It's a much bigger, you know, talking 30, 40, 50, 100,000, $500,000 contracts. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, it sounds like more like a, a more traditional sale that I'm I'm used to, where there's like a department or multiple departments who are who are focused on actually procuring this technology and improving the marketing operations. And yeah, and I imagine these multi-location businesses, like the menu management, is probably a huge pain 
point for them where it's like, okay, there's a central office who's dictating the menu and then that has to be distributed out to the 50 locations and all the different Google listings. Yeah, I can imagine that being very complex uh, if you're doing that manually. It's very frustrating for them to manage. And then, you know, one of the things that, that that we do that I think makes us unique is our integrations into their point of sale and their backend so that we actually sort of remove the the necessity of them having to like do extra work, right? You know, the, you know, the, the line on our banner, right? Digital, you know, digital hospitality simplified, right? The, the idea behind that is I don't want to make more work for you. I want to be the layer on top of your software that exists today and just be able to allow the endpoints to communicate with each other without you having to do anything manually aside from like connecting the, the two systems together, right? And that's usually just like an OAuth in, and now we have access to your menu data. So when you update your point of sale, now, Marquee already has access to that data, and we can send it everywhere. Whether that's your own website, whether that's you know online publishers, you know whether that's you know first party delivery platforms, wherever it needs to go, we make sure the customers are getting the right the right information. Very cool, very cool. I'd love to end today's conversation, kind of comparing the Yex journey with with Marquee, because I imagine it's been very different, kind of being you know early employee versus being a co founder. Like, how are you thinking about kind of the, the two different journeys and any big differences that, that yeah, stick so out? They're actually surprisingly more similar than you might expect. I think. Look, I think the biggest differentiator is you know the the early days of of Jim Ticket Alpha Four and One slash Yex. Uh, the biggest differentiator is the in-office versus remote, right? Uh, I think the, the the biggest challenge for me, for our team, is learning how to grow an organization successfully in a remote environment. And we love being remote, right? It's like I think it's one of our our core values is the fact that we can be so you know so ge- geographically separated, but at the same time all feel together. And we use a lot of technology to help us do that as well. It, this is honestly very reminiscent of the early days, you know, the early, early days of the gym ticket and Alpha 4 on 1 in, you know, just getting your hands dirty and being a part of as many conversations and with the customers as I can, right? Towards the, the, the latter days of my career at Yext, I was further and further removed from customer conversations. And quite honestly, that's what gives me energy. That's what excites me. And it's part of the reason that, you know, at the end of my time at Yext, it just wasn't for me anymore. You know, it's very different managing, you know, a small sales team of 5, 10, 20, 40 than it is being, you know, an SVP of a global company that has 2,500 employees, right? And so uh, I enjoy being a part of the day-to-day. I like watching everything we do make a difference, right? And you actually see the movement in the business. Uh, And that also being said, we can also move quickly, meaning like we can change quickly, right? You know, the, the, the analogy is always made like between like the speedboat and like the cruise ship, right? And so speedboat can make a U-turn much quicker, much quicker than a, uh, than a cruise ship. And so, you know, I like the ability to make those quick changes uh, and, and do what's right for the business as we continue to grow and not, not get held up by the red tape. Well, thank you so much for the, the wonderful conversation, Brian. If people want to follow up with different questions, where's, where's the best place for them to find you? Probably. I mean, email is probably the best way. I'm happy to share my email or if you want to put it as part of this. Cool. Uh, you can put you it know, in the show notes, yeah. Easy way to do that. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I'm not a big uh, Twitter or Instagram guy, but I do have accounts on both. So if people want to find me, it's at Burakovsky on both and, uh, and, and I'm there and I'll get the notifications. Right on. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow & Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growintelshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.